Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why? We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisby and in today's show I'm talking to Bob Hoy. Bob Hoy's website is institutionaladvisors.com. He writes the newsletter Pivotal Events and in that newsletter he has called the markets over the last six months or so better than virtually anyone. Hello Bob, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Dominic, doing very well and today being Thursday, where the market uh, slumped in the morning, made a few attempts to rally. This is the New York Stock Exchange, and then closed on a, on a big recovery. And it's been an exciting day because for the last few days, uh, we've been covering shorts, and we were looking for an important low in the middle of November. And uh, this would ted, test the dreadful low in October, and I think it's done it. So, well, today was an amazing turnaround, and it wasn't just um, it wasn't just uh, the Dow and the S and P. It was gold and silver as well. Looked like they've turned around. Oh, um, crude oil. Uh, a number of the commodities turned up. Now, perhaps we should just sketch uh, to how we got here. And the key thing was the failure in the stock market in May when it uh, did that one week huge drop that then fit our model of hey would be down on the next slide uh, by about 25 percent from the high in October this of course using New York senior stock exchange uh, senior indexes and then uh, once we had that low in July and it did fall 25 percent from the high then we'd look to a rebound churning around to August and then probably a classic fall crash model. What made it gave us confidence when we got out to late October, early or late August, uh, early September, was that there had been the appropriate changes in the credit markets. The yield curve uh, was again steepening, and credit spreads were widening. And this, of course, is uh, the the part that I, that takes apart the idea of uh, equity investors uh, looking at stock markets on the long term, looking at earnings and looking at management and looking at the Fed and all is going to be wonderful. But if the credit markets are changing, they can uh, overwhelm efforts by central banks to keep the good times rolling. And they were changing during the summer, so it was set up for a classic. And then in it came, and um, we wrote a piece in September that pointed out that on previous fall disasters such as 1929 or 1873 or even going back as far as 1825 bubble, that the policymakers did make a tremendous effort to prevent a contraction and it crashed anyways. So, And then at the end of it, particularly the one in 1825, the Bank of England officials in a report congratulated themselves by discounting paper of all kinds and lending money, throwing it out the window. And according to them, they ended the panic. But we found that panics follow a pattern. 
usually the heaviest liquidation in the latter part of October, the rally, the bounce, and then testing those lows around the middle of November. So this is where we are now on pattern, in which case there'd be, I think it'd be going to be struggle for a month or so, but it should uh, eventually work to a rally, uh, but just a rebound in the bear market out to around March, perhaps. So. And uh, what, 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 what would your targets be on the rebound? 50% from the highs? or? Yeah, we haven't put a price target because we only have just seen what is probably a low now. And then we have to have a few days in order to then set up and put some price targets. But if it's going to run until March, it's going to be a tradable market for sure. One would be long. So the other thing that helped out uh, on, on the uh, classic fall crash model was our uh, current work on technicals. And uh, as you recall, back on the week of Friday, ending Friday, October the 10th, we needed to have a down week there on the Dow Jones to register what we call a downside capitulation. And that did come in. As a matter of fact, that was that Black Friday where the bottom fell out, but that gave us what was needed, in which case the market could churn around for a few weeks or that may have been the low but it's a condition, and it's a rare one for the Dow. The only previous ones were 1966, and then three such examples in the 1929 to 1932 bear. So uh, that's a rare event. We also got that in the S&P as well, for example. But it has a tendency to give more frequent signals. So anyways, we're looking for the, the excesses on the downside, which that model was registering in October. And then we were looking for the test of that low. Now, the other thing that was constructive for the overall markets is that we also got um, the downside capitulation last week on the CRB, Commodities Index. And they have been part of the liquidity problem. And uh, so with that one, somewhere within a week or so, you'd expect it to shake off its problems and turn up. And then just this week on Monday, we got downside capitulation readings on base metal, a base metal index. We use the Goldman Sachs uh, GYX uh, index, and it gave uh, downside capitulation. And then the best, uh, I think, index for representing mining, base metal mining stocks is the Toronto uh, SPTM uh, index. And we also got a downside capitulation on that one. So that made us think, oh boy, this could turn. As a matter of fact, early this morning, uh, when the Dow was down heavy, we were thinking sometime within a couple of days it should turn. The other item that was constructive beyond the commodities was that money market distress, which reached its dreadful condition in a few weeks ago, there has been a decline in, for example, the LIBOR rate, and in the U.S., the dealer commercial paper rate had declined. So money market side was conditions were easing. And then for the last week, the uh, yield and spreads for the triple B investment grade corporate bond was also easing. So that was constructive. So this is what made us feel that within, within a few days, uh, it should turn up. And then bang, it, it did it during the day. Uh, President Bush also uh, addressed the nation 
But I don't think that had anything to do with it. It, it was it, it was built in the cake, so to speak. I mean, what we've seen since kind of about July, well, not kind of about what we've seen since exactly July is a huge rally in the dollar and basically a decline in everything else. Um, are you now bearish on the dollar in the short to intermediate term? Yeah, well, we can uh, go on that one because in the spring, uh, the dollar index uh, fit a, a classic pattern for an important bottom. It, it, it also did our downside capitulation, and then it was in a pattern that we call a sequential buy. So when that came in in March, we were then looking for a technical rally in the, the U.S. dollar. And then when the credit markets turned to adversity in May-June, we were then looking for a, a real move up in the dollar because, uh, well, the fundamentals, it sounds flippant, Dominic, but the fundamentals were that the world was long hot stories and short dollars. So as the hot stories failed, you end up with forced liquidation, which means that you end up covering, in effect, leveraged dollars or short dollars, and it worked. It was a terrific rally. And then um, uh, on October 22nd, we got an upside exhaustion on that one. So then it meant that it would correct for a while, and that was with the first rebound in the stock market into recent. And then on the latest uh, leg down in the stock market, of course, the dollar rallied back to test that high of uh, 88 or something, whatever it was. And then now, yes, we think that the dollar index can decline generally, maybe to the end of December, as markets that we watch, uh, such as commodities, and the stock market recover going the other way hey we we also were shorting the uh, the long bond well that was my next question uh, the long bond read your uh, upside exhaustion uh, meter uh, i would say about a month ago if i recollect you described it in your newsletter as as the last thing to go <laughs> can can you explain what you mean by that the bond future rallied up to 124 and change. Uh, let's go on, on as the market, stock markets first started to get hit because the uh, crowd playing the long bond were doing it on a knee-jerk basis, whereas every time the stock market sold off, you bought the bond, and it was described as a flight to safety. And it is not. In a, in a real contraction, Treasury bill rates go down, which they did this time to, well, hit 0%. Because that's the most liquid item, and there is risk at term in long bonds. And but anyways, it was nice because when it was rushing up to 124, it set off some of our alerts and stuff. So it 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 was satisfying because it generated a technical high, in which case it's now in a stair step down decline, and it can go all the way back down to about 104 anyways, which was the last important bottom on the long bond. So. Uh, it's now going to do it, I would think, because you're going to have a rally in commodities and rally in the stock markets. So, but the key thing is it's been one asset class that has been bid up as part of the party, and it looks like it's going to be the last asset class to end the party and then decline. And, I mean, you, you mentioned the figure 104 there. I mean, it, it, that's an intermediate target. Do you see it going a lot lower than that? Oh, in a real disaster, it could. Uh, because what you're essentially looking at is 
a disappearance of liquidity. And uh, two years ago, when the pundits were all calling and saying that it was liquidity was driving the price of commodities up or the, or the stocks up, it wasn't liquidity. It was the fact that these asset prices were going up, which then enabled uh, speculators to leverage. So it wasn't it wasn't liquidity pushing stock prices up. It was asset prices going up and creating a huge amount of leveraged money, which has to be paid eventually. So this is why when you get a a break in, in prices in a market like this, it has astounding reverberations around the world. I mean, you're you're finding that the huge pension fund in California employees, CalPERS made the mistake of buying a whole lot of raw land for housing developments. And they're now forced to liquidate stocks and bonds to to look after their problem in the real estate. So mm -hmm. it's amazing how this all drifts out. Um, what uh, price do you see the, the, the long bond yields going to? Oh, the yield. Yes, indeed. That's a toughie. Uh, what you're looking at, I mean, I, I was looking at a long-term chart of of the yields, and it's yeah. basically they've been in, in 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 a kind of steady decline since goodness knows when, 1981 or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 1981, the high was 15% on the long treasury, right on down to recent lows. And uh, now, in a great big bubble such as we have seen, one of the features is that uh, the real long rates decline, and uh, if you take the yield on the long bond and then the rate of inflation, which was sort of plus five and a half, and at four you or three seventy-five, you then get a, a a real rate adjusted for inflation about minus one and a half or minus two. This has happened to varying degrees, but essentially on each great bubble, real long interest rates have declined, and then in the scramble for liquidity following real rates go up, and they go up tremendously. Tip the typical increase has been 12 percentage points. That's not 12%, but 12 percentage points. And that is accomplished by the nominal yield going up. That's the one you see trading every day. And the rate of inflation, CPI inflation, going down. So uh, uh, if you've gone from minus, let's, let's be generous, say minus 2, and you're going to go to plus 12. So you have to increase by 10 percentage points, and that could be accomplished by the coupon yield going to 8%, which would suggest bond prices could fall in half, and the rate of CPI inflation going to minus 2. Now, to talk about a minus on the rate of inflation seems preposterous, but in a post-bubble contraction, prices go down. So, They're talking about it. The Bank of England was talking about that very thing only today. I didn't see that one. I was busy writing a market letter. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, let's talk about everyone's favourite subject, which is gold and silver. You've you've said that uh, typically in a uh, coming out of a post bubble contraction, gold um, is the best performing asset class, and we can expect some kind of bull market in gold for the next two years. Yeah. Um, the before cyclical correction. And actually, if, if the long, long credit contraction goes on for 20 years like they have done in the past, then Sorry, you're in for a can long Can I just inning. confirm that? 20-year credit contraction. Yeah. But, with, you know, but 
But Dominic, with the usual business cycle, you know, three or four years expansion, a couple of years contraction. So what we're looking for now is the real price. And we also, for our own use, uh, do it by taking the nominal price of gold. That's the one you see every day and dividing it by our own commodity index. And we created that index to hopefully it would behave similar to that of the Economist All Items. And it's fairly close. It has its highs within a few days of the Economist Index and its lows as well. So now this, then, with the real price of gold declining in every bubble, this got down to, our index got down to 143 in May a year ago. And it's interesting because it then turned up as the credit markets turned down, which seemed appropriate. Now it's over 300, so it's more than doubled. And what this means is if you're a gold mining company, uh, when the price of commodities are going up faster than the price of gold, then the cost of energy, power, blasting agents, all tied to the price of crude. So your costs are going up, wages are going up, that sort of stuff. So you don't make any money really in the gold business during a great big boom. And then when the uh, boom is over and prices are falling, they fall relative to gold. So this is, as I say, uh, the gold divided by commodity index has gone from 143 out to, I think it's around 3, what was it yesterday? Close in. 326. That's a huge move. So it is not showing up in the in the mining operations yet, but you will see ahead that as base metal mine production shuts down, you're going to have miners available. There's going to be more blasting. You know, so there's things get cheaper, and it should work. That uh, that this, and and also this real price will continue up probably for the next couple of years as the orthodox side of the equation, i.e., stocks, bonds, economics, and all that sort of stuff, head down. So. The gold mining industry has had its best innings in a post-bubble contraction. Well, funnily enough, Bob, I like to look at the price of gold in sterling because a lot of us UK investors buy our gold with sterling. And and in fact, it's not far off its all-time highs, uh, even though it's down 30% of its all-time highs measured in dollars. Um, Let me ask you, uh, so we can expect gold miners to do well in this post-bubble contraction because effectively their profits are up. What about mm-hmm. gold itself? If if the dollar's going to do well, does that mean gold itself will go up versus the dollar? Well, I try and get people not to focus, unless you really the, just well, the re- I, I, I appreciate I appreciate why people don't do that. A lot of people will trade their gold. Yeah, no. If, if you want to trade gold, fine, in your own currency or other currencies, that's fine. But if we get back to the real price of gold, like, for example... In the 1929 crash, Homestake was the senior producer, and it came down to 8th and 8th, I can't remember whether it was October or November, but 8th then. Into the early into 1930, you could have bought it for $9 a share. The price of gold was fixed at $20.67 an ounce, and with the 1928-29 boom, the cost of mining went up and relative to what they were getting for bullion and their, their earnings suffered. So then you then look at the recovery and uh, you get out to the end of 1932, which was before Roosevelt started fooling around and changing the price of gold, and it was still $20.67 an ounce. But if you look at home stake stock, it was up, uh, as I recall, about 140%. 
and their earnings were up 140% with no change in the price of gold, but their costs fell. And something similar in Canada at the time, Dome Mines was one of the major producer, and uh, same thing, similar, you know, relatively, it was more of an orphan stock on the down, so it made a bigger percentage gain. So, so it, it what it, it illustrates is that you don't have to have a change in the price of gold in dollar terms in order to get an increase in in, in uh, operating margins. So uh, you're considerably more bullish about uh, the, the miners rather than the metal itself? Yeah. And the, well, also, this will flow down. I think the whole... I would buy the whole gold sector from biggies to middling-sized ones to exploration stocks. And now? You, what, now whatever is the buy your, point, yeah, is Yeah, it? right now, whatever your portfolio can handle. Okay. Uh, I will what, say, uh, just I was talking to Keith Neumeyer, who's uh, in charge of First Majestic, which is a Mexican silver producer, and he mm-hmm. said at the moment he's getting hundreds and hundreds of CVs on his desk every day, CVs, you know, mm-hmm. from good people. Yeah. yeah. Now, we should also talk about silver, which is an important metal, and it's also very important relative to gold. And in a boom, silver goes up relative to gold, and then in a contraction, silver goes down relative to gold. So uh, earlier in the year when the gold-silver ratio was hanging around 50 for a long time, our target then was that if we're going into credit problems, uh, the gold-silver ratio would go up, and then technically breaking above 54 would set the uptrend. And our ultimate target was 100, quite simply because in the last U.S. banking crisis at the end of 1990, when uh, Chase, Manhattan, and Citibank had to be bailed out, the gold it was so distressful to the credit markets that the gold-silver ratio got up to around 100. So then we just simply used that as that on this contraction, ultimately the gold-silver ratio get out to 100, and on on a on the daily close basis it got out to about 85, which was rather quick in our minds, but nonetheless, what we're looking for now is that, and since that high, I guess a few weeks ago, it's uh, it, it's going to correct. It, if it got to, let's say on a closing basis, it got to 85, then it'll correct maybe back to 70 or something like that, or no, it's already been there, maybe to 65. So we're at a, at a period of time where the next uh, month or so, silver could outperform uh, gold. So our advice over the last couple of weeks has been to cover the shorts and silver stocks, which we had recommended earlier in the year, and uh, to kind of get long the the gold and silver sector. I've heard this financial uh, situation that we're in described as a monetary holocaust. You're a great student of the history of money. Um, We were talking about Winston Churchill uh, before the show began and how much champagne he used to drink. But he also made a great deal of quotes, perhaps when under the influence of champagne. But one of those quotes is, all previous attempts to base money All previous attempts to base money solely on intangibles such as credit or government edict or fiat have ended in inflationary panic and disaster. Would you agree with that statement? And is the dollar going to collapse? Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree with his statement, the observation that experiments in currency depreciation always end up in rampant speculation and and also 
that rampant speculation can burn out. So what, of course, you need for a central bank such as the Fed to satisfy the gold bugs that all of the lolly they've been putting out is going to depreciate the dollar is that you have to have all asset classes going up again because I think what's going on is that the contraction of credit outside of the federal system is so big relative to the amount of money that the Fed is putting out. Now, we all should also recognize that central banks in England and Europe are pumping it out, but they also did that in the early 1930s, and it didn't work. So I'm staying with history that once you get enough asset prices falling, then the efforts by central banks to inflate are constrained. So uh, I I don't uh, get all excited about huge high estimates for the price of gold. I know that some highly experienced gold people have uh, suffered in the last few week, uh, last two months in their gold positions because they just could not understand that gold would go down in a crisis such as we've had. But then the real price of gold fell in with the crisis in 1929. And there was a gold quote against the greenback back in 1873. And in August of 1873, I think it was around 119. And in November, in the, as the crash was ending, it was down 106. So uh, we've had examples where a price of gold can go down in a fall panic, and it did this time. So uh, it, it's it's working as it should. And in which case, we think that that uh, the real price will continue up and the mining sector will work its way to being a, a premium uh, sector relative to most others. Okay, so if I've got you right, the experienced investor should be, uh, or the experienced trader should be positioning himself as follows. Uh, long stocks looking for a rally into maybe March of next year. Uh, long gold stocks, short the long bond, um, what about the less experienced investor? What about someone like my mum? What what should she be doing? Should she be buying gold bullion? Should she be uh, holding cash? What what should she be doing? I think she could buy a good gold um, mutual fund. I think she she should also be long the five year note uh, in uh, government bond uh, gilts in your country. And also the five-year note in U.S. because eventually the U.S. dollar is going to start an uptrend, resume the uptrend. So the reason for choosing the five-year is that in previous post-bubble contractions, treasury bill rates fall. They've done it already. And long rates go up, which have just begun. So if you're in short-term stuff that is uh, avoiding risk and every rollover, you're going to get lower return. If you're out at the long end, you're going to get killed in price. So the best place we figure to be is in the five-year note. So our advice, and then also for those in different currencies, we definitely own some five-year treasuries in order to get the exposure to the U.S. dollar. But that could be entertained uh, perhaps next year uh, when the U.S. dollar may be a little weaker. I mean, by next year, I mean into January, February, or something like that, when the U.S. dollar may be a little weaker than it is now. And over the next two years, do you see gold stocks breaking out to new highs? 
to recognize? Oh, definitely. It's going to be a tremendous party by the time we get out there. But we should look back to May of 2006. It was fabulous then. It was so good. And um, then it's it's been, uh, you know, a long period, more than two years, two and a half years now, a bear market for the for the junior gold sector. And um, so I think that uh, given uh, the way things go, when they're really ugly, you got to buy them, and then there's bound to be a party out there two years from now. And gold itself, do you see that breaking out to new highs as well? Uh, no, we're, I... I uh, no, I'm just staying with the real price. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I, I want to emphasize that you can make more money out of the stocks when you got the real price going up. But as I say, if traders want to trade bullion itself, then it depends on which currency you're in and your own skills, and uh, that's fine. We can let them look after themselves. I see. So you like to, to allocate the sector and then you let the traders decide how much leverage and how much uh, yeah. uh, margin they want to use. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, Bob, do you trade the markets a great deal yourself or do you spend most of the time watching them? And, and No, no, I trade. I'm a fairly aggressive trader. and uh, But uh, I don't use huge leverage. Uh, been short generally since since that May-June turn, and um, been enjoying it. I must say, and I mean, every now and then with your newsletter, you send out a, um, a, a market update. A, 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 it's called a chart work. You call them chart works, and they're, they're a, a chart. Some chart signal has, 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 has been made, and you send out a, an email telling us. And, and uh, I mean, a couple of weeks, well, not even a couple of weeks, I think it was last week, you you said to, to reshort the S&P when it uh, went... To, it was just after the election. It was on the day of the election. That's when it was. And, um, I mean, you just nailed a kind of intermediate top r- right to the... Well, right we're to the actually... Our work has a long-term flavor to it. For example, in uh, May, June, talking about the probability of a disaster in the fall. And then when we arrive in the fall, then we have our monitors on the market looking for excessive downside conditions which we've got so then you unwind your shorts and you start going long and uh, so sometimes on the chart works which is dealing with a little shorter term view uh, sometimes some of the calls have been uh, say expected for a certain two or three day period and it comes in and like this is one of them we're just expecting this test to conclude sometime around now and what's and your looks, sorry? What what is your eventual kind of low for the low target for the stock market? I know you're speculating because we're we're nowhere there, near there yet. Oh, I mean, oh no, this one. No, you can say this is going to be say the S and P. I think it can be down by seventy five to eighty per eighty percent by the time this cyclical bull market concludes. Uh, the to the recent low, I believe, from high October. A year ago to the recent low was off by about 45%. So it could almost halve again from here. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then you also have in history, like in October, Warren Buffett, I think more to try and do his bit to shore up the market, announced that he was buying, uh, that he'd be buying good American stocks. And then at about the same time in October 1929, Rockefeller, announced publicly that he and his son were buying uh, blue chip stocks and 
if you looked at the uh, Dow Jones then, it, uh, it, I think it was around 195. The ultimate low was 42. So I think that these people who have made uh, big money on the long boom, and I admire Buffett for the amount of money he's made, has been extraordinary. But when you're dealing with the violence of the end of a boom such as we've seen, the only uh, persons who have the experience with these are those that were around in 1929 or those that have read about all of the previous blow-offs and their consequent contractions. So I think it's interesting that history with Buffett has probably replicated what the Rockefellers were doing in October 1929. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing parallel. One of the, the stories about commodities that you hear is this is a 20-year bull market that began in the year 2000, and commodity bull markets last 20 years, uh, yeah. and bear markets last 20 years. And there is a kind of repeating cycle. What, what do you think of that theory? Well, the theory, and I look back on it to and I, and what Jimmy Rogers said some years ago, maybe five or six years ago, that it was simply... There was an 18-year bear market for commodities. Therefore, we should have an 18-year bull market. That was uh, his view. So uh, being uh, the skeptical types that we are, uh, you look at history, and when you're in an asset-inflating period, whether it's tangible or financial assets, now in the, in the boom up in the tech bubble up to 2000, there wasn't much inflation in tangible assets, but there sure as hell wasn't financial assets. So um, you do not get the start of a 18 or 20 year bull market in commodities at the top of an, of a, an era of asset inflations. The only time you get 18 or 20 year bull markets for commodities consistently is coming out of the bottom of a depression. Uh, like uh, 1895, or the Depression bottom in the 1840s, or the Depression bottom in the 1790s. <laughs> Shall I go back further? <laughs> but so it's there in, in the long-term history of prices that the most consistent 20-year bull markets for commodities come out of a Depression bottom, and that is usually some 15 or 20 years after the preceding era of inflation in all assets. Such so as when, when, when did this bull market in commodities start then, according to you? According oh, to it depends on which one you look at, but uh, definitely you've had a cyclical bull market since 2001 for copper, 2002 for some of the other base metals. The percent gains, if you deflate them by the producer price index, uh, got up to... well. You had the biggest percent gains on a database going back 100 years. And in the case of some of them, you might have had previous cyclical gains around 200%. And this time, uh, for example, it might have been up 400%. I haven't got them in front of me now. But uh, the percent gains were factors of magnitude bigger than the best in 100 years. So then that led us uh, uh, last um, May-June to outline that we had a cyclical contraction in credit and it would eventually force a cyclical bear market for commodities 
and with such outstanding gains, it perhaps the concept or the tout of a 20-year bull market was fully in the market, which it, now the price action uh, confirms that. Because as I said, you've had 60 and 70% declines in some of these commodities, which of course is pension funds disgorging themselves of an asset class they suddenly embarrassed to be owning. But then we did a study on uh, life insurance companies in North America have had a long history, and they've been very good at keeping track of their own history. So I did a review, and the earliest I could get was back to about the 1860s. And the pattern is there. Whatever the hot asset class is of the time, they will be long, and they'll be talking long-term stuff. So in 90, going in the 1920s, uh, the more aggressive life companies got fully long stocks on the great industrial revolution story, and then they got burned very badly, almost like the case of Sun Life, which was an ina- out of Montreal, but an inter- international company. And then with Chagrin, they promised they'd never do it again. And then so they were then fully long bonds when the yields were down at 3%, heading for 15 So then they decided, uh, and more recently, that they would protect themselves from inflation and buy commodities. So you, you, there's a good documentation that the pension funds and life companies will be fully suckered by the fashion of the moment and belong and then suffer great chagrin afterwards. It's it's ironical, but you don't know whether to laugh or cry. Good stuff, Bob. Institutionaladvisors.com is the website. How do, how do we sign up for your newsletter? What's the process? There's there? a, 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 get into the website, or even if you just uh, Google my name, Bob Hoy, B-O-B-H-O-Y, it'll get you into the website. And then our colleague there, Brian Ripley, looks after all inquiries uh, and uh, the website and everything else. So there's also some amusements there because we put some of the cartoons that we dream up from time to time in there. So uh, it's worthwhile looking at. Good stuff. Bob Hoy. Very good. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dominic. We look forward to talking to you again. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.